0: David Pearl with us with Epic uh, Investments. We're thrilled to have him here. These are people that are legendary in trying to figure out shareholder value, trying to figure out use of cash. Is there a model at J.P. Morgan of use of cash? Is there a diamond way of doing use of cash? Or are they like every other big multinational?
1: well the, the, david the mic's
0: over here it's radio
1: there yeah we go. there we go so they they clearly have a strategy and it includes a very large return of capital uh this is the big change over the last few years because the regulatory environment has gotten a lot more favorable they're able to give the capital back which is creating a huge upside in return i don't think investors have really keyed in on this the, you know, bank earnings have been up all year and the performance has been very mediocre. So really valuations have come down, they've gotten cheaper. Uh, they're not getting credit for a whole lot of things, that their profitability has increased all year with the tax cut, with being more efficient, having a higher net interest margin, holding oh. your deposits while rate goes up. And, yeah. you know, it'll, <clears throat> it'll come. John,
0: I don't have it in front of me because my entourage uh-huh. didn't set up my computer correctly, but the statement from Mr. Diamond, was very, hey, regulations better. Yeah, Taxes are better. Quite clearly. And they opened their first branch in Washington, DC.
2: I think that this call later on with Jamie Dimon is gonna be probably the most listened to earnings call of this quarter. It's gonna be really, really interesting. And it comes up, I think it starts at about 8.30. Could he be
0: UN ambassador?
2: I don't know about that, Tom. I don't know. I don't know about that. Do you really want to have that speculation yeah. right now?
0: I don't. I'm just yeah. trying to get the zeitgeist going on a I, Friday I, I, morning. I, I imagine <laughs> why it's Justin not going to be after you, an ambassador. Ask Mr. Perl
2: another I'm going to ask him a real question. That's Is it. you asking the stupid ones at the moment? I, I don't know where you're going well, with that. Why, what? What, did AC Milan <laughs> lose or something? Oh, Tom, uh, David, let's yeah. talk about the banks. Record profitability, yeah. still underperforming the benchmark. When does everyone else get the joke? I asked that to Mike Mayo, who's very right. bullish on the banks as well. But it's not
1: shared. Why not? Well, the market has been on a growth kick. They're paying up for revenue growth, not for profits. The difference between the value benchmark and the growth benchmark has never been wider. It's a growth market, and banks are the value sector. But if you look at it just across the board, everything that is um, a value sector has underperformed great profitability the question is why it will turn and i do think rates going up is one of those reasons yeah Uh, there is this view that the economy is going to eventually slow go to recession of course it is but not for the next 12 to 18 months so banks are going to continue to do well consumer credit has remained strong. That is really important. It's when consumers start defaulting that banks do poorly. So we've had some stability in this equity
2: market through this morning, but every time we get a market route, any kind of correction, I get a lot of people come on this program, Tom gets a lot of people coming on Bloomberg TV, saying that it's time for value to take over from growth. I'm hearing it again. Why is now any different to February or every single time we've had a drawdown in the years gone by?
1: Well, certainly from a point of price discovery, the valuation gap is just enormous. You can buy semiconductor companies at seven times earnings. Banks are at 10 or you know just above book value. There's really a lot of value. And what's going to happen is non-financial buyers will take advantage. Someone's going to buy you, like Broadcom buying a software company, uh, private equity taking out a real estate company. There's a lot of activity where people outside the financial markets see these companies is undervalued okay. so
0: to bring it back here within all the uproar, just a, f- a final couple questions if we could how does a pro like you react to two hellacious days in the market yeah do you like go see the Rangers lose another game or you know what, what do you do
1: you know our view is the market in the short term is very chaotic you know, I don't even know if someone told me insider information whether that was not discounted. So in the short term, the market just is very volatile, not Mm. a lot of information. If you look at, if you're an engineer, signal to noise ratio, the noise in the short term is very, very high. The signal is the earnings, the profitability. Over a long period of time, the market gets the earnings. If you are a company and you generate cash and you grow, somebody eventually figures it out. Now, it's been a long time where banks and value has underperformed, but people are beginning to see that.
0: David Pearl, Epic Investment, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it this morning, working with William Priest. Now to touch in on 25 days, 5 hours, 11 minutes, and 8 seconds away, the election. Terry Haynes joins us with Evercore ISI. Terry, you are nudging, I know, towards a Democratic victory, but a lesser so Democratic victory. Is that just because of the uproar over Justice Kavanaugh, or is there something else going on?
3: Well, I think, Tom, that uh, basically what's going on with the midterms is that yeah, you know, you've got all 435 members of the House up. You've got a very small uh, Republican majority that uh, uh, that they're trying to defend. And what you get uh, out of what I've been getting for some time, and what a lot of others get as well, is a gain of about uh, 30 to 35 seats, which is which is kind of standard for the first presidential midterm. Uh, that's about how much the president's party loses. So what you're what what you're ending up with is a uh, is a very small uh, Democratic majority to begin with. And that's really before we see uh, what I've started to call right. the Kavanaugh effect, uh, because what you're going to get here is what you've had is uh, more intensity from Democratic voters than the Republican voters, which is unusual uh, for midterms
0: in the last couple of decades. Yeah. Uh,
3: but now I think you're going to get that evened out. Uh, so, you know, right. we, may, we may be seeing the high water mark of that.
0: The tradition is that the extremes of parties are there and then by assumption you migrate to the middle. I think we've broken that certitude. It's ended. Do you assume we get it back? Do we get back to a four-year cadence where we're extreme because it's convenient, and then as we get to a presidential vote 2020, we migrate to the middle, or is that forever gone?
3: Uh, Sometimes what I – frequently what I think about this is that uh, the parties uh, both – you know in terms of salesmanship uh, sort of overemphasize their contrasts uh, but you know what you've got on fiscal issues so the things that uh, that markets care a lot about particularly uh, is a is a broad bipartisan middle, and we've had that for many years uh, where uh, where both parties essentially agree to maintain largely maintain status quo and uh, you know so i what I think is I think people like uh, you and I who, uh, who have paid close attention to all the noise feel overwhelmed by it sometimes. But I think the uh, uh, I think the voters uh, don't really feel that way at all. And you you can see that in a lot of different ways, one of which is uh, by how people self-identify as independent, which keeps
2: rising. Terry, can we spend the best part of I'll give you 30 seconds and then we can just leave it after that on celebrity endorsements. I do feel like the news flow this week been, has been hijacked by either Taylor Swift or Kanye West. Terry, does any of this matter? No. <laughs> uh,
3: you know, I, I, uh, I said on, uh, on the television side this morning to Tom that the first time I see a celebrity endorsement make a big difference in, in politics. Will be the first time I see a celebrity endorsement make a big difference in politics, and the reason why is that for every person who who may think it's uh, great uh, that Taylor Swift did what she did, and maybe even register <clears throat> to vote or vote well, for, uh, based on that, there's going to be somebody else who do, who doesn't like that and pushes back.
0: Okay, so, so you know
3: I really think it washes out.
0: I, I mean, John wasn't paying attention to one of my properties this morning, uh, Terry Haynes, which you can understand. But, you know, there I was with my opening going, she don't believe in shooting stars, but she believes in and cars from Kane. And, you know, I, I look, Kane. Terry, <laughs> you know, I look, Terry, at these celebrities. And let's take the other side of John's good question. Do they harm a candidate?
3: They can. Sure. Uh, the, the, entirely de- dependent on uh, on who that celebrity is. I mean. You know, let's let's not take either of the two that you've mentioned. Let's take Dennis Rodman. <laughs> you know, a Dennis Rodman endorsement of anybody probably wouldn't be good uh, b- for that particular candidate. Uh, but you know, it's uh, yeah. You know, it, it very much depends on the, the on the candidate and the celebrity. I've if, got to uh, say, all, all the celebrity no to,
2: endorsements to really of Hillary Clinton certainly didn't help, did they, Tom?
0: I'm looking at the words in this. I hope my kids are you are, looking at the lyrics. I, I hope my kids right. are listening. You carry to on this.
2: looking at the Kanye West lyrics, and Terry, I want to Kanye? get to the issue. I want to get to the issue with Turkey. Um, Andrew Brunson, the preacher from North Carolina, who was essentially detained by the Turkish authorities and accused allegedly of being involved in the 2016 coup attempt, this has been at the epicenter of some of the sanctions that have come down from the United States on Turkey. Um, Andrew Brunson has his day in court, Terry. What's your base case on how some of this is going to play out?
3: Uh, in terms of uh, in terms of whether or not Brunson gets released or not, your I think it ba- actually does.
2: Your base case there, and what that could mean for sanctions.
3: Um, I, well, I think the uh, I, I think the base case is that uh, Brunson ends up getting released. Uh, I mean, it seems like it's uh, moving in that direction, and uh, and as a result. You know i think that the uh, i think the sanctions get uh, bobtailed to some degree I, I think they probably don't go away completely but uh, they might get lessened uh and, and uh and that's certainly been right. reported in the press as well it wouldn't surprise right. me at all
0: terry uh, just to get one more question in here and this goes to jp morgan's earnings mr diamond in his statement mentioned different regulation he mentioned the tax reform uh, as well how long are the benefits of the tax bill that you personally brought forward how long do those benefits last
3: uh the political benefits yeah i think they uh i think they increase in the next two years frankly because Interesting. you won't see the uh, you won't see the full flower of uh, of this really start working through the economy uh until 2019 or so uh, i tend to look at it i i i Try to resist making the facile comparisons, uh, historical comparisons. But I look, I look at this a lot the way that uh, what happened in the first yeah. Reagan administration uh, when uh, when they made the deal, but uh, they didn't do well in the midterms. But by the time that the right. reelect came around, uh, the things were really, really booming, and uh, that had a great impact on uh, Reagan's yeah. reelect.
0: Terry Haynes, thank you so much. We look forward to speaking to you 25 more times before the election. Terry Haynes uh, with Evercore. Uh, Gustavo Rano, chief economist for ING uh, in Latin America this morning. Gustavo, thank you uh, for being with us. What is the state of the Latin economy? If you were to advise a major too big to fail American bank, is it a different Latin America than it was in previous uh, expansions?
4: Well, good morning. Uh, happy to be here. Well, it's uh, what is critically important for for uh, foreigners, for investors to understand about Latin, Latin America is the fact that right now none of the big Latin Latin American countries be that Brazil, Mexico, Colombia, Chile, Peru, they have the, the the vulnerabilities that the likes of Argentina and that Turkey have, meaning they have accumulated during the good years, during the boom years of the commodity cycle, they have Accumulated a lot of FX reserves, a lot of FX reserves. In, in in the case of Brazil, for instance, they have more dollars than the total amount of external debt held by locals, be that the government, the corporate yeah. sector. So this is a huge, a huge, uh, change, a sea change, I would say, for LATAM. So they are not vulnerable to to FX volatility as they used to be. So balance of payment crisis won't right. happen there. There.
0: Tell us of Brazil, the election, and that balance of payments dynamic right now.
4: Well, balance of payments of Brazil, they are stellar. Uh, there's there you go, John. A,
0: there's the point. Stellar.
4: Exactly. There is barely uh, uh, in, uh, a current account deficit. There's a huge surplus on, on, on foreign direct investment. So there's much more dollars coming in than dollars going out of Brazil. So it, it's very good uh, pos- position to be. Uh, The elections uh, have triggered a a lot of uncertainty, of course, because Brazil, instead of balance of payments problems, Brazil has a fiscal problem that needs to be dealt next year, and this is what is hanging the balance here. So we have uh, right now a candidate that is, this uh, the right-wing called uh, candidate that is uh, decided to has decided to tackle the problem, and that we have a left-wing candidate that has decided to ignore the problem, and and the market uh, have reacted uh, very well over the past couple of weeks because the right-wing candidate is is, is won the first round that we yeah. just had, and is lead and is leading the polls uh, dramatically when it comes to the second round that we're gonna have uh, at the end of October. So it's very good result for the market, for investors in general.
2: So Gustavo, that right-wing candidate is Bolsonaro, and Bolsonaro yeah. himself seems to have deferred the economic policy to an advisor, and that advisor is pretty much the individual that everyone in the market has defined Bolsonaro's economic policy by, um, and, and I'm just trying to understand whether that is the correct way of looking at this, and what is actually the economic policy of Bolsonaro, not his economic advisor, but of the man himself?
0: Well,
4: uh, I I would say it's not so bad to have a president that... Uh, Defers to experts. You know, we've had in the past in Brazil, especially with the last president, Dilma Hussef, who was a president that thought that she knew a lot about economic policy and ended up resulting in the big mess that Brazil is right now, meaning a very deep fiscal deficit, a lot of uh, a big expansion in the size of the state. So the fact that he is humble about his lack of economic policy knowledge is actually a, a good thing. Uh, it, it's not necessarily a bad thing, and it shows that he is a leader that is willing to 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 delegate yeah. in areas that he is not uh, really knowledgeable about. Gustavo, so-
2: I agree with you, but I think the issue that is important to sort of explore is if you are going to defer your economic policy to someone, fine, that is absolutely fine, but I'm trying to understand how fluid his own policies are, because you can defer to one individual with one set of opinions, then several months down the line, defer to someone else with radically different opinions. Are we sure that he's gonna have this consistent approach to economic policy?
4: We can only hope. (laughs) What we can tell you is that he's been very um, uh, consistent and in in, in his uh, political campaign and the propaganda, whatever, he's been very consistent in, in, in voicing the policies that are supported by his advisor. And this is a big, uh, big novelty in Brazil. We've never yeah. in Brazil had a candidate that has voiced right-wing economic policy views. Right. We've never had a candidate that has talked about the privileges of the public sector employees. We've never right. had a candidate that talked openly and defended privatization, so i'm I'm super uh, optimistic in the sense that he's not shied away from these topics right. that in the past, have been taboo. There, you. If you said things like that in the past, you would not be elected. Right. And now he's saying out in public, and and it's not like he's hiding these things. He's saying out in public, and 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 that is a, a quite interesting thing. Well, we
0: have to leave it there, Gustavo. And thank you so much, Chief Economist uh, for Latin America with I N G. Doing an excellent job as well with uh, PwC, Mitch Rochelle with us with an update on uh, uh, real estate. And it's a different view. It's much more about investment dynamics. And I love a single sentence you've got, which is, I guess, Dallas is a booming investment uh, economy for real estate. And number two is Brookburg, New York, Brooklyn, New York. I mean, I, I would think with the slowdown in New York, maybe that's ebbed a little bit, but it's not.
5: Yeah, yeah. Tom, I was surprised, honestly, when Brooklyn came in at number two, because the big cities in New York in particular has been out for a while in terms of being out of popularity. But what's interesting is there's population growth. There's the right mix of workers um, and companies actually want to be there because the workers are there. And the market, while very pricey, is really undersupplied from a commercial real estate perspective in terms of office, and believe it or not, warehouses. So that's why it it was hot.
0: I mean, I'm looking on street easy, and just to be (laughs) clear, folks, so everybody understands, it's a hitter like John Farrow. I mean, he wants to be in Brooklyn to be cool, right? I mean, that's all this comes down to. And the money's following the cool people like John
2: Farrow?
5: John doesn't have a beard, though. Well, he's sort of No, 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 no,
2: it needs to grow a little bit longer (laughs) for me to sort of become (laughs) Brooklyn-esque. Does 5% on a fixed mortgage rate, 30-year fixed, start to make a difference, Mitch?
5: No, the five five handle doesn't freak too many people out. Five and a half, closing in on six maybe. But let's just remember what's happening in housing. There isn't a lot of supply in terms of new construction and people aren't putting their houses on the market for sale the way they had historically. So we don't have enough supply. There is tremendous demand and I can talk about that in a bit. So prices are going up. So if the higher cost of debt starts to cool the rapid year-over-year price increases, that's probably actually a good thing for the market so that we don't get into bubble territory. Well, let's talk
2: about residential in Manhattan. Most people would conclude that looks soft right now. Are you saying it isn't, Mitch?
5: No, I'm, I'm talking more nationally. The, the, okay. the, the story in Manhattan is really the absence of foreign buyers who had been coming into New York in droves. And that was happening long before the administration's view on trade. It's just that foreign buyers didn't like it. Now the US dollar is so expensive, they're backing off. So, um, But the rest of the country is really undersupplied uh, with new housing stock.
2: Can you help me out with something why whenever I walk around the Upper East Side, downtown, midtown, up Lexington Avenue, there's all these empty storefronts, nobody's there. I mean we can go for a walk just outside Nation the building wide. now. We can just walk up the road for, for ten minutes. But surely yeah. price has got to adjust at some Thank point, you. I Mitch. Agree.
5: Yeah. And and part of that is landlord's unwillingness to Why to meet the bid I as mean, well. John's spread. question's critical. Yeah. And there, what will happen is when they can't make mortgage payments and their lenders start to pressure them to cut the rent in half. That's when it'll happen, but other things are going on in that building. So you're looking at the street front, look at the floors above that have had massive rent inflation so that they can afford to weather the storm on the ground floor. But
0: do you, this is a critical question for Coast to Coast Sirius XM channel 119. Do you have confidence those empty store funds will discover a new price? And will be occupied.
5: I think they will discover a new price, and they'll probably discover a new use. And if you look at the trend across the country, you had strip malls that we've all seen across America that had big, massive vacancies. A lot of those spaces yeah. have been repurposed with something in the healthcare space, urgent care being a big um, retail use. Yeah. You're going to start to see alternative uses for that space um, that start to make sense. Yeah. But the the bid that they have for rent may be considerably lower than the landlords ask i want to
0: come back and talk about the regional the cities this whole trend of the kids can't afford new york so they're moving you know boston wherever and they're moving uh, to other cities but to stay on the big cities anymore what's the investment dynamic right now into the autumn into the winter we're going to take occupancy next august or whatever on a new building what's that dynamic right now
5: um right now the price is getting pretty pretty frothy Um, and if tenants start to back off a little bit, you're gonna find landlords starting to have to make more concessions. Mm -hmm. That's why you find investors, commercial real estate investors, wanna stay away from those big cities because it's just become very, very very pricey for them. Because I just,
0: it feels to me like every single block in Manhattan has a seven floor project going up. Am I wrong?
5: A lot, you know what, it's interesting. I don't see it as much as others do. Because I have this long-term view, and I remember when there were a lot more cranes in the city than there are right now. Okay. Uh, And I just got back from Boston, and boy, on the south side of Boston, there are a ton of cranes. So when I compare it to New York, New York doesn't feel so bad.
0: Mr. Shaw with us. Love having with us. PwC got a huge response when he's on. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance podcast.